to another edition of Home Field Advantage. My name is Will Highland. I am your host. Today is April 13th, 2021, and I'm coming to you on a beautiful sunny afternoon here in the northeastern part of our great nation. So excited to be back on the air talking to you all about sports and its impact on our daily fandom and our daily lives. It's uh a great time of year. We just wrapped up March Madness. We had the Masters last weekend. The NBA and NHL are in the midst of their stretch runs of each respective season. Major League Baseball opened up its season last week or just over a week ago. And last but not least, the NFL Draft is coming up. And that in and of itself is will take up some of our discussion towards the end of the program. But I really wanted to start with the story that broke last night that's gaining the most amount of attention here uh, in the Northeast and in New England in particular. And that is the retirement of Patriots wide receiver Julian Edelman. Uh, He retired yesterday evening via a Uh, Facebook and Instagram video uh, that he also put all over social media on his other accounts, uh, but primarily those two platforms uh, in which he sat in a Hollywood chair in the center of uh, Gillette Stadium's uh, playing surface and uh, spoke from his heart about, I, from what I believe uh, is, is the last we'll see of Julian Edelman on a football field. Um, uh, the video was kind of cheesy, but it is what it is. It's kind of what you expect out of uh, Julian Edelman. He's, you know, a lovable character um, and someone who will certainly be missed on the field because of his toughness and his ability to put his body on the line for his teammates and for the greater, um, you know, for the greater team effort. I mean, if you want to talk about the quote-unquote great sport ethic, you know, someone who sacrifices their body uh, for their team, uh, there's no one I would think of ahead of uh, Julian Edelman, except potentially Dustin Pedroia, who also retired earlier this year after a similar problem with his uh, knee. Excuse me. Just going to take a drink of um, soda here, doing my best Marco Rubio impersonation um, in the middle of this uh, recording. Uh, But yeah, like I said, I want to start talking about Julian Edelman because I think he transcends sports in a way in terms of sort of that, like like I was talking about earlier, that, you know, drive to succeed, um, you know, at all costs, I think can be found in many walks of life. I know Julian himself was someone who uh, really would have done anything possible to get back on the field and play. Uh, you see that all the time uh, with people, like I said, especially in sports, but just all around, uh, you know, people that who really have that zest for life like Julian Edelman had, um, really want to give it their all, especially uh, with their occupation. So it's sad to see him not want to play football anymore, but I understand it's probably the best move for um, himself and his family as it pertains to his uh, physical health. Uh, He's someone that uh, clearly had some injuries that were building up on him. And I think for him to enjoy life 
in the future, perhaps stepping away from the game of football was something that uh, definitely needed to be done sooner rather than later uh, so that, you know, he'll be able to, you know, live life to the fullest extent uh, and not have to deal with any nagging injuries. You know, one thing that's come up with Julian Edelman in the last 24 hours, again, the discussion about whether or not he is a Hall of Famer, whether or not he is someone who should even get consideration for the Hall of Fame. And my biggest my biggest point in that discussion is that the dude just hung up his cleats a, a day ago. I think it's a little premature to be talking about that. Um, you know, there will be people that say, look, Jerry Rice, Terrell Owens... Those are the kind of, Randy Moss, those are the kind of receivers that belong in the Hall of Fame. Not slot guys, not guys who didn't have huge touchdown numbers. I mean, you look at Julian Edelman's career, he only has just under 40 touchdowns in 12 years of playing. And, you know, Randy Moss had 23 in one season. So I, I think it's hard for receivers you know, you can go all the way back to Lynn Swan. He didn't have the numbers, but his team was so good that he still made it into the Hall of Fame. And of course, he was catching pass, passes from Joe Montana. You know, Jerry, I'm excuse, excuse me, he was catching passes from Terry Bradshaw. Jerry Rice w was catching passes from Joe Montana. You know, and, and of course, Julian Edelman catching passes from Tom Brady predominantly. So those three players had prolific careers, but they all played in different eras. They played for Hall of Fame quarterbacks, and they all won Super Bowls. You know, Terrell Owens and Randy Moss, they didn't have on the Calvin Johnson, those kind of guys. They didn't have the on-the-field success as it pertained to team winning. Um, and, I, and I also think in this conversation, it's difficult to separate Julian Edelman from the Patriots. Uh, and that might seem a little bit obvious and kind of peculiar because Julian Edelman played for the New England Patriots. But the Patriots won their Super Bowls as a team. It's a team sport. They won those Super Bowls as a team. And as much as we like to place Super Bowl championships on the back of quarterbacks, and in many cases it's warranted, it's not Julian Edelman that won the Super Bowl. He won a Super Bowl, and he was a big part of literally all three that he won. Uh, you know, if you look at the catch against the Falcons or the big third down conversions in the touchdown pass he caught against Seattle or the fact that he won Super Bowl MVP with, uh, I think, 14 receptions, if I remember correctly, against the Rams. He was a huge part of all those three Super Bowls, but... It's hard for receivers to get elected to the Hall of Fame based on team success. Whereas when you talk about quarterbacks who are looked at as the leaders of each of their respective teams, it's much easier for them to get elected to the Hall of Fame based on their team success. You know, Eli Manning will likely make it to the Hall of Fame simply because he has two Super Bowls even though the the remainder of his career he had pedestrian numbers. Um, 
you know, the same can be said for players who they had great stats, but they didn't win any rings. But because they had great stats, it didn't matter that their team success wasn't as uh, wasn't as um, significant in their career. So when when it comes to Julian Edelman, it's gonna be hard for him to to become a Hall of Fame candidate and elected candidate simply because of the success that he had in the postseason. There's only one player with more receptions in the postseason than Julian Edelman, and that's Jerry Rice. The issue is Jerry Rice was a fantastic player when it came to touchdown receptions, overall receptions. I mean, for the first four seasons of Julian Edelman's career, he had under 20 catches or excuse me under 25 catches each season you know that's not that's not hall of fame numbers you know but then as his career progressed and he became a leading figure in the Patriots offense that's when his case began to grow as it pertained to postseason accolades Um, I know this is kind of a hard line to walk you know New England fans will yell at me and say well well, how could Edelman not be a Hall of Famer? You know, and then people outside in New England will say, Julian Edelman's not a Hall of Famer. You know, Super Bowls are a team stat. So I guess it's sort of a hard, like I said, a hard line to walk. Um, and, and like I said as well, he's only been retired a day. I think we'll have plenty of time to debate this topic. Um, but if you had to ask me, I don't think Julian Edelman is a Hall of Famer. It has nothing to do with his tenacity or his toughness or his willingness to succeed. It's just for receivers to make it into the Hall of Fame, you have to be all world, you know, a generational talent. And I don't think Julian Edelman was a generational talent. I think he was a generational hard worker. And unfortunately, we've in the NFL, it's not like baseball where that gets you into the Hall of Fame. It's not like hockey where that gets you into the Hall of Fame. It's actually more like basketball where you have to have the stats and you have to have the winning in order to get in. You really can't get in without one or the other. Um, And, you know, even guys, like I said, that were average stat players like Eli Manning, he'll make it into the Hall of Fame simply because he won two Super Bowls. That could that could happen with Julian Edelman, and frankly, as a Patriots fan, I hope it does. I hope he finds his way to Canton. I just wouldn't, I wouldn't expect it to happen, just because of, I mean, there's so many players from the Patriot era, from the Patriot dynasty, that aren't in Canton, that would otherwise have been in Canton if they played another position, especially quarterback, simply because of the success that they had on the field. So that's my thought on Julian Edelman. I really don't um I really don't like to talk about Hall of Fame uh debates even even the shortly after a retirement occurs, but since I was seeing so much about it online today, I figured I'd indulge everyone uh for a moment. Now I want to switch gears here and talk about 
another debate that has... Excuse me, I'm really thirsty today. I have no idea why. Something about talking. Maybe it's because I haven't done a show in four weeks, but I'm really thirsty today. So if you hear me pause, if you're listening on our audio feed on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and you hear me pause for a second, I promise I didn't pass out. I am simply taking a sip of soda, partly because my new work schedule has me working much earlier in the morning than I was ever used to. So in order for me to be functioning on a Tuesday afternoon in the middle of the week, uh, I need <laughs> I need some sort of caffeine in the later afternoon. Um, so anyway, I want to indulge another debate that has gained some traction over the last two weeks or so, and that is as, as it pertains to um, the Bruins' goaltending situation. Uh, you know, when I launched this podcast, I didn't want to focus solely on Boston sports, even though I'm based up here in the Northeast, but it was sort of difficult to avoid the Julian Edelman topic, and it's equally as uh, difficult to avoid this topic. Um, The Bruins have had a tough season. They started out like world beaters. looked like no one was going to beat. And the night they were playing Philadelphia out in Lake Tahoe, I thought to myself, there's no way this team doesn't win the Eastern Conference and go to the Cup or whatever the Eastern Conference means this year. But anyway, there's no way this team doesn't go to the Cup and win. You know, there's no way that they just don't dominate from start to finish. You know, and then the last, like, eight weeks or so, they've really faded. They've become very inconsistent. They've had many players go down to injury. They have had to deal with COVID-19 precautions and postponements. They just had to deal with so much stuff. And part of that has been because they have been playing a long time without Tuka Rask. I mean, I don't think Tuka Rask has played since mid to late March, you know, if I had to remember correctly. I mean, I can look up his his last... Um, you know, his last game played, but it was, I don't think it was any, any time prior to March 20th. I mean, I'm going to look it up right now. Uh, Let's see. Yeah. So his last game was March 25th. Um, That's what it looks like to me. And that was an overtime loss to the Islanders almost, almost a month ago now. And likewise, Yaro Halak, who is Tuka Rask's backup and a, excuse me, a quite serviceable backup in the NHL, has also not played a game in a while. I'm going to check that stat too. I should have these in front of me, but of course, you know, being unprepared as I am, I did not. He hasn't played since April 3rd. So it's been almost two weeks of playing with either Danny Vladar or Jeremy Swayman. And those guys have rose to the occasion. But now we've created a debate about whether or not Tuka Rask or Yaro Halak or any of those other um, two gentlemen I mentioned are 
going to be on the team beyond this year and what the goalie makeup of the roster will look like. Now, if I had to give an outlook on what I think, I would basically give three scenarios. I would give, here's what's probably going to happen. Here is the most realistic scenario. Not just what will probably happen, but it's almost certainly going to happen. And then the third scenario being, here's what I want to happen personally as a fan and a follower of the Bruins. What will probably happen is Tukarask will come back. He'll be healthy, sort of. He'll play. You'll have Yarahulak sort of try and come back, but not really come back. And in the meantime, Danny Vladar will be the backup because they, for some reason, I don't think... I don't think they want to throw Swayman into the fire already. I think they want him to play in Providence more. That's just my gut telling me. So then you'll look at a goalie depth chart of Rask, Vladar, Swayman with Halak sort of inching his way back into the fold only to not be on the roster. Which kind of leads me to my... Most realistic scenario, which is if Halak is healthy and Rask is healthy, they're going to play. Vladar will be sort of the emergency backup and Swayman will play in Providence. Now, I know those situations sound very similar and they are because I don't believe the Bruins want to play Vladar and Swayman too much. I think the fact that Swayman was playing three games in a row told you a lot about him in terms of what they wanted to see from him. And I think he rose to the occasion. Because let me be clear, I am a huge Jeremy Swayman fan. Obviously, I'm from Maine. He went to the University of Maine. He's from Alaska. He's an American kid. You know, he's really likable. He has a great attitude. I want Jeremy Swayman to be the future goalie of the Boston Bruins. No ifs, ands, or buts. I want him to be someone that we go to war with every April to try and win a Stanley Cup. And if they can build around him, Charlie McAvoy, David Pasternak, Carlo, Stanika, hopefully, if he's any good. I would have said Andrews Bjork, but eh, he's gone and he hadn't really surprised me too much. So anyway, if they can build around those those young guys and then have Swayman and Net throughout the rest of this decade, and if they can keep Bruce Cassidy around, I love Bruce Cassidy. That would be a Bruins team that I would love to see. You know, especially if they can hold on to Taylor Hall, and we'll get to that in a second. So that's what I'd like to see. I want to see Tuka Rask and Jeremy Swayman on the team playing every game for the rest of this season. I I like Yaro Halak. He's serviceable. He's good. He's reliable. He's a veteran. But unless they think they're going to win the Stanley Cup with this roster and all these injuries that they've had, I think it's time to roll the dice, yet we know we can win with Rask. Whether or not we like the fact that we can win with Rask, we can't. 
Now, can they win a cup with Rask? I'm not sure, but they can compete for a cup with Tuka Rask. I'm not a boohoo Tuka Crew member. I do believe that Rask can get you there. Whether or not he will and whether or not they have the cojones to do that, I'm not sure. But I do believe that Tuka Rask, healthy, playing well in the postseason, will get you a chance to win the Stanley Cup. We're only two years removed from that being a real possibility. I do think that as long as you're competing and you have Jeremy Swayman there to back up Tuka Rask, I would love to see that. Look, Halak and Vladar are great, but I don't think Halak is going to be healthy enough to get forced into a situation where if Tuka isn't ready to go or he struggles that we're going to put Halak in there recovering from an injury. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I know a lot about the backgrounds of these injuries. I really don't. I just know that they're hurt and that's what's <laughs> and that's what the current situation's like. But if I could see Jeremy Swayman backing up to Karask for the remainder of this season, I would be well on it. And people will say, well, Will, why don't you want Swayman to back up if he's just gonna if he's just gonna sit on the bench all playoffs behind Tuka Rask? Because if you sit behind Tuka Rask in the playoffs and let's say Tuka has a bad night and you get forced into a playoff atmosphere, that will do a lot for Jeremy Swayman's confidence. I'm not worried about his confidence because he's shown that he's cool, calm, and collected in the net. You know, he's aggressive. He comes out of the crease. He plays hard. He's like a Tim Thomas in that he plays outside the crease and he's aggressive. And, you know, sometimes, as I quote a local sports broadcaster here in Maine, sometimes you either got to be a Timmy or you got to be a Tuka. I believe that you can win with Tuka, but I definitely believe that you can win with someone like Timmy. And I think Jeremy Swayman will one day be as good, if not better, in, in the clutch than Tim Thomas was. And then Tim Thomas won a Smythe Trophy and a Stanley Cup. That's how much I believe in Jeremy Swayman, and that's why I want to see him continue to be a part of the Boston Bruins this year. There. I needed a breath after that. I know I kind of went rambling there, and appreciate it if you followed me through that segment. And if you don't like hockey, you can just ignore the last 13 minutes or so, and we can move on uh, in just a little bit. But first, I want to tell you about our friends over at Anchor. Anchor is the best and easiest way to record a podcast. Back when I was a kid and I was in high school, I wanted to record a podcast and I wanted to be on iTunes. I thought it would help me pick up chicks. I thought it would help me get popular among my uh, teammates who always thought I was the one that knew the least about sports. So I was like, I'm going to make a podcast and I'm going to prove to everybody that I can hang with the boys. Problem was, I didn't know how the hell to do that. It wasn't until I got to college and I discovered that you can create a podcast on Anchor in just minutes. All you got to do, you can sign up with your Google account, your Facebook account. All you got to do is sign up. And then once you sign up, you can record you can record on your iPhone, you can record on your laptop, you can record on the software that they have built into their website. It's so easy, my grandparents could probably do it. 
And you know what? It's even better. Once you record, you can use built-in audio, you can use their built-in description features, and they'll distribute it for you. You don't have to go to Google. You don't have to go to Spotify. You don't have to go to Apple and ask them to do it yourself. No, nada. It's actually Anchor. They're the ones that will go and distribute your podcast for you. All you got to do is record and all you got to do is have fire takes. So if you want to start your own podcast and climb the charts with me, all you got to do is download Anchor. That's www.anchor.fm www.anchor.fm to get started recording your podcast. It is the easiest way to do it. And trust me, it's easy. So before the break, we were talking about the Boston Bruins and their goalie situation, but I also wanted to touch briefly on their trade deadline situation. Uh, They were able to get Taylor Hall from the Sabres along with Curtis Lazar in exchange for Anders Bjork. That was actually a very good trade. We had been talking for almost years about the Bruins acquiring Taylor Hall. You know, he was drafted first overall in 2010. It was actually the same draft that the Bruins selected Tyler Sagan second overall. So they had they had a great shot at doing that. And then, of course, they got Mike Riley as well, who's a veteran defenseman. So they gave up little draft capital. You know, I think it was a second or third round pick in Andrews Bjork. It was a lot better than recent seasons when they had to give up either young prospects that they probably believed in, like Ryan Donato, or when they had to give up Danton Heinem. Uh, and, and, you know, a couple of years ago, they had to give up first round draft pick to get Rick Nash. So they didn't give up as much as they had in recent years. And so that's why I'm excited about it. It feels like we had been talking for years about the Bruins acquiring Taylor Hall. So I'm glad they were able to do that. I am concerned whether or not Taylor Hall will be a good fit here in Boston. I know that he wanted to be a Bruin, but I'm not sure that uh, it will end up being a good fit. I guess time will tell in that regard. I'm definitely excited that we'll finally have a second line winger to go along with Krejci. It feels like, again, we've been waiting for that ever since Milan Lucic or Jerome McGinley or Louis Erickson or, you know, Riley Nash or all these guys that played on those lines. I know Riley Nash was a center, but he didn't have some versatility. You know, all, it seems like all those guys, Rick Nash too, they were all, uh, you know, sort of placeholders. Whereas I think if they can get Taylor Hall to commit here, he could be really strong going forward. And I'm excited to watch him in action for the remainder of this season. I I truly believe that the Bruins are still in it to win a cup. I'm not sure, like I said, how the goalie situation will will wind up. But this team is certainly good enough to win a cup if they're healthy and if they get production from their best players. Um, I totally think that they're right up there with the best teams in the NHL if they're clicking uh, at all cylinders and, excuse me, firing at all cylinders and clicking. Um, so those are my takes on the Bruins. Uh, you know, I love talking hockey. I really do appreciate, um, the people that follow it as well. It's kind of hard to find people that follow the NHL, um, as closely as I do. Um, I, I don't pretend to be an expert in everything, but it's certainly easier to find guys that talk and have knowledge about the NBA than it is about, um, 
people that find the NHL uh, as equally as interesting. Um, so thank you for indulging me on those two Bruins thoughts. Um, there is one hockey, one last hockey-related item I want to get to today. It's actually a bit of sad news. Um, the U- University of Maine's hockey coach, Red Gendron, passed away suddenly on Friday afternoon. Um, as you know, uh, as and as I said earlier, I'm a big Jeremy Swayman fan. This is a pro-Jeremy Swayman podcast. Love you, Maine hockey. Um, and so I would actually gotten to know Red Gendron from afar, not personally, but in the past few years when I started following UMaine hockey closer. Of course, growing up in Maine, I was a kid when, uh, you know, Tim Whitehead was the coach and they were winning, uh, you know, winning tournaments and headed to the Frozen Four and stuff like that. But, um, and of course, the Walsh years. But uh, Red Gendron just had a special grandfather-like demeanor to him uh, that was very, uh, very good to listen to. He was always great in interviews. He seemed like a guy that really cared about uh, other people. And uh, it was actually really great to see some of the tributes that uh, were put his way over the past few days. So certainly appreciate um seeing those and especially the tribute that the uh, NCAA tournament gave to him uh, before the uh, Frozen Four final between UMass and uh, St. Cloud State. Um, So just want to offer my condolences to Red Gendron's family. Um, I couldn't imagine losing someone suddenly like that. I I hope it, I hope it, um, I hope it doesn't (laughs) happen to me. but, you know, it's certainly a reminder that life is precious and, and, that, um, and that people like Red Gender need to be remembered and appreciated for the positive impact they had on especially the growth of young athletes. So, yeah, I just want to offer my condolences to Red Gender's family. Um, he seems like a guy who was extremely well-loved. Uh, so... On that note, um, I think I'm going to move on and talk just briefly about um, the baseball extra inning rule. Um, I was going to talk about the Masters. I had that on my list, but really the Masters was kind of boring. I think the coolest thing that happened at the Masters was uh, how Matsuyama's caddy was like saluting and kneeling to the um, course. I think that was wicked cool. Um I always talk about the unifying power of sports on the show. So I think something like that's a really cool gesture and a great way to learn culture uh, too. So I thought that was interesting. I did watch some of the final round, but um, you know, it's hard to watch on Sunday when you know there aren't any big names. I think the biggest name was probably Spieth and he finished fourth. So it, um, it was kind of disappointing in that regard, but certainly good for Matsuyama to be the first Japanese-born golfer to win a major. That's pretty cool, um, and uh, pretty cool that his uh, caddy felt the uh, impulse to uh, give that salute and uh, honor the course that way. I thought that was really unique. Um, but like I said, I want to talk about the baseball extra inning rule briefly before the mailbag section. Um, it's a topic that as I've said before, I feel fairly strongly about um, 
But to me, it comes down to one fundamental question, and that is, what is the motive? If the motive is to make baseball more exciting, then I can, I, I can yield the floor to that argument, and you know certainly hear anyone out who wants to make that argument. Hell, I can even make it myself. I do think that it does make baseball more exciting. But the problem is that's not the motive on why they're doing it. They're doing it because they want the game to get over quicker. And they want the pace of play, which is the three worst words in baseball history, other than performance-enhancing drugs. I think pace of play is the stupidest term ever. Um, As if any of these minute changes they make are really impacting the pace of play. Uh, You know, what will really impact the pace of play is making sure that people can't get out of the box for longer than 10 seconds or making sure that, you know, that umpires aren't, you know, arguing with people and that will never go away. And you, you shouldn't want it to go away as a baseball fan. So I think pace of play is a poor way of rationalizing this rule. Um, because great pace of play in this instance does work. It's not like the other ones. It's not like, you know, requiring that, uh, you know, the mound visits being shortened or any of that stuff. I mean, it really is in this case helpful to shorten the game. So I understand it. I just think it's a poor rationale to do it. And partly because, Unlike the others, it actually impacts directly the outcome of the game. Now, bear with me here. People will say, well, yeah, I mean, so would a limit on mound visits. So would a pitch clock. So would a... But some of that stuff, I mean, as a fan, you don't even notice it's there. I ran the pitch clock at a minor league baseball team. And I would have so many people who I'd talk to after I'd tell them what my job was what it entailed, and they'd be like, oh, I didn't even notice there was a pitch clock, you know, or I didn't even notice the teams were limited on mound visits, but when, but when you watch a baseball game for the first time, it does actually impact the outcome when you realize that there's already a runner in scoring position when the bottom of the, or the top of the 10th inning occurs. I mean, the other night, I was sitting with my wife and sister-in-law, and we were watching a game, and I was like, Hold, hold hold on a second. I don't remember Chavis hitting a double. Did I miss Michael Chavis hitting a double? No. He was playing, you know, he was playing the role of a base runner in the extra innings. And he ended up scoring as a result. You know, and I understand that it makes the game more exciting and it adds gamesmanship to baseball that sometimes lacks to the naked eye, that gamesmanship in baseball sometimes doesn't even occur to people. But to do it simply to speed up the game is just so shallow to me. Like, it just seems like a cop-out for not wanting games to go so long. You know, like, people talk about, oh, well, 18 inning games are such a drag. Honestly, when was the last time you ever watched a full 18-inning game as a fan? You never... True baseball fans will watch that 18-inning game and relish it for the sanctity of 
the integrity of in the just all of that. They'll relish that. If you ask someone who complains about long baseball games when the last time they watched an 18 inning game was, they'll say they couldn't even remember when one occurred, let alone recall that they watched it. So if we're really worried about getting new fans into baseball and really scared that the pace of play will make them go away, we don't, un- we don't understand what it is that people are attracted to about baseball. Like we, and, I, and I know I'm rambling a little bit here, but like we're worried about Gen Zs and Millennials not falling into baseball, but they're the ones that are most likely to stay up till 2 a.m. and watch an 18-inning game. So in a way, they're already sort of inverting their goal. Like their goal was to say, okay, it's the old timers that like the long inning baseball games. But again, they don't, the likelihood of them being the ones that stay up in the wee hours of the morning to watch the end of it are less likely than those young fans. Now, if you want to talk about attention spans, if you want to talk about action, if you want, like, that's a whole, I could do a whole nother podcast on that. And again, I know I'm rambling. But if we look at this in particular and say that this alone will help speed up baseball, and if it's just because they're throwing a COVID excuse on it for this season, which seems to be what they do when they don't want to admit that they want to make long-term changes, then that's pretty dumb. And that's something that real baseball fans will, will, uh, will resent them for. And as I know I use the term real baseball fans, and as much as I talk about how unifying baseball can be, the MLB needs to be careful that they don't sacrifice the forecasted future for the current reality. And what I mean by that is they they can't sacrifice their present day relevance for what they hope the future of the sport can be. Because right now, they're they're using this to stay relevant and in a way that's working but they're also trying to do that to test what it would be like as a long-term solution and in the meantime they might lose current fans who will still be valuable long term so they need to be careful that they have their timing correct because they could really mess up the demographic goals that they're trying to set by alienating younger, hardcore baseball fans who will be the pole bearers and standard bearers of the sport and its subsequent survival in coming years. You'll need stalwart baseball fans in their 30s and 40s who are currently in their 20s and 30s to run the sport if they get to that future that they seem to be gravitating toward. If that makes sense. Again, I might have to talk over this in greater length uh, when I have a guest on and I can get a second opinion. Um, But that's just my take on the baseball extraining rule. Speaking of second opinions, I'll hit the mailbag real quick. We just had a question. um, 207-323 says, uh, what are the Patriots draft targets going to look like? What are the predictions for draft day? Yada, yada, yada. Um... My prediction is I don't think they're going to take a quarterback in the first round. I really don't. Um, 
there's a lot of guys on the board. You got Lawrence, Wilson, Lance, Jones, Fields, Mond, uh, Trask. I mean, they're all over the place. I I don't think they're going to. I don't think they're going to draft a single guy. In the first round with pick fifteen, I don't even think they're going to trade up. I think they're going to take the best defensive player available at fifteen, which will likely be Quiddy Pay from Michigan, who's an edge rusher. Or Micah Parsons, who's a linebacker from Penn State. There are some players on the board in some mock drafts. Uh, J.C. Horn from South Carolina, he's a defensive back. You also have Patrick Certain from Alabama, who's a corner. They'll probably go higher because for some reason people people are really gravitating toward Corners and offensive tackles over receivers and ed rushers in some of these mock drafts. So I have to say that these guys sort of know what they t- they're talking about, and that those edge rushers and linebackers will stay late later on uh, in the middle of, of the first round when the Patriots are picking. So I don't think they're going to take a quarterback. Uh, that being said, they'll probably draft a quarterback in the second round, and I have a feeling that's probably going to be Kellen Mond or Kyle Trask. Um, I don't think they're going to take a tight end for obvious reasons. They got Hunter Henry and um, Jonu Smith in the uh, in the offseason for a reason. Um, so I think the early round draft is going to be best defensive player on the board for the front seven, followed by second round. They're going to take a quarterback that they believe will fit the profile and the um, sort of report or ranking or score or whatever metrics that they use to grade um, players at that level. I don't think they want to take a quarterback in the first round that they deem to be a second-round talent, but simply because they're a quarterback uh, go in the first round. They saw their division counterparts do that for a decade and a half. E.J. Manuel, uh, Chad Pennington, who ended up being an average player, um, E.J. Manuel, Geno Smith, uh, J.P. Lossman, Trent Edwards. I mean, everyone did it for years in the AFC East, and I don't think the Patriots are going to make that mistake. I think they'd rather be mediocre for two or three years um, and make sure that they can really get their guy and not just take a guy. I think they want their guy. So that's my Patriots draft um, day uh, outlook, especially for day one. Um, 631 area code says, do you miss TB12? I think that's pretty obvious. Who wouldn't miss TB12? Uh, He's the greatest player to ever play in the history of North American team sports. Um, So yeah, I miss him. (laughs) I think that's pretty easy. Uh, Pretty easy answer there. Uh, if you if you want to participate in next week's mailbag or next episode's mailbag, feel free to DM me. It's at homefieldpod on Instagram. That's at homefieldpod on Instagram. Uh, you can also DM me on Twitter uh, at Will Highland on Twitter. That's at Will Highland. W I L L H Y L A N D. More than happy to take your mailbag questions. I know there are only two today. Last week there or last time there were four. So uh, hopefully next time there will be more. Speaking of next time, I am making an open invite to anyone that wants to be uh, on this podcast as a guest. Please, again, DM me on Twitter, at Will Highland on Twitter, W-I-L-L, 
H-Y-L-E-N-D on Twitter uh, if you want to be on this podcast. I have a couple people that I haven't reached out to yet that might be ahead of you on the uh, quote-unquote depth chart or booking list, but I'd love to have some guests on here, preferably people that know sports and like to talk about sports um, or people that have a background in media or news as well. would love to chat with someone else. Um, so open invite for guests. Would totally love to have anyone on. Uh, I know this is sort of a long podcast. It was uh, another monthly one. Hopefully I'll get back into the weekly uh, routine like I was in seasons one and two. But appreciate you all listening to Home Field Advantage. Uh, like I said, you can catch us on Spotify. You can catch us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, right on the Anchor platform. Um, please also check out my friends over at Mainly Celtics. They're another podcast that has launched this spring. They're pretty funny to listen to. They're great guys. I played high school baseball with both of them. Um, really entertaining, uh, really uh, fun to listen to. So you can find them on uh, Instagram uh, at Mainly Celtics, Main like the state, M-A-I-N-E-L-Y Celtics. On Instagram, they have some great content on there, and uh, they're pretty fun to listen to, like I said. So maybe someday I'll have them on the show, too. But uh, anyway, thanks for listening to Home Field Advantage. Uh, Today is April 13th, 2021. Hope you can like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. It would be greatly appreciated uh, in addition to your listenership. But as always, have a great rest of your week. Until next time, my name is Will Highland. This is Home Field Advantage. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite provider, including Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Home Field Advantage is produced and recorded by Will Highland under the umbrella of Sportland America. Home Field Advantage is an independent program, and the opinions shared on this program do not reflect those of any other company or entity.